and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osband, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yavama, daf Yud Aleph, page 11. So this daf has two uh, different cases that it tries to explore about different types of uh, Yavamot situations. Um, and Anne and I will each take one of them. Um, and again, it's in the context of uh, our first Mishnah, which is it's not so much about the case of the woman itself, but it's about her co-wife and whether this would be an additional case. Remember, the Mishnah had a list of 15 cases where um, the co-wife would be excluded because of different types of relationships. And so now they're trying to see, could they find additions to that list? And so they have two that they play around with on this particular death. So the one that I'm going to deal with is a woman who maybe would exempt her tzara, her co-wife from Chalitza and Yibum, because she was a sota. I'm a Rav Yehuda, I'm a Rav. So Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, Sarat Sota Asura, the co-wife of a Sota is forbidden to the Yavam, basically. So in other words, if you have a woman who was a Sota and she has a Tsara, she has a co-wife, and their husband dies childless, the Sota is not going to be eligible for Yibum. And so Rav Yehuda is of the opinion, uh, in the name of Rav, has a statement that uh, even the Tsara would also be Asura, right? That she would even be exempt from uh, from Chalitza, would be exempt from Chalitza as well, right? And so the idea here is that as one of those wives commits adultery and then the husband dies childless, um, you know, obviously the Sota isn't going to be allowed. And so the question is, does this, you know, also basically, um, you know, exclude the Tzarat? Now, one thing that you need to know about here, which has to do with the discussion is how do we, determine that somebody is a Sota. And a woman is only determined as Sota uh, by the fact that she actually, there were witnesses that she actually uh, committed adultery. And this is actually going to be important with later on in the discussion, right? And so how do they know this? Tuma Ketiv Baba Arayot. What's the reason, right? There's a reference or it sort of says the word uh, Tuma when it talks about uh, the, uh, when it talks about the Sota, as it also says, when it lists all of the Arayot. So in other words, the same way that all the Arayot, right, if the woman is, if a husband dies and he has, uh, if a man dies and he has two wives, one of the wives would be an Araya to the Yavam, right, then she's excluded, obviously, and then also her co-wife is excluded. So because that word Tuma is used with Arayot and the word Tuma is used with Sota, what we basically learn from that is, is that maybe they should be comparable. And just like the Arayos are excluded and exclude the co-wives, uh, so too the same should be the case with Sota. So now this ruling of Rav is going to be challenged. Mati Rav Chisa. So Rav Chisa challenges this. And he quotes a Mishnah that actually appears later in Yavamos. Okay. Um, and this Mishnah is basically dealing with a case with a woman who's, uh, it's basically as a, a husband goes overseas. And she's actually told that her husband was actually, had actually died. And on the basis of this, she goes ahead and she marries somebody else. But then her first husband actually returns, right? So then it's like her first marriage was never actually over. And, you know, the, she basically unknowingly, not on purpose, committed adultery with the second man. So according to the Torah, she actually is permitted to return to her original husband, unless he would be a Kohen. Right. Um, because it wasn't her fault that she had this second marriage. Um, and it was basically, you know, so, so that's how we basically uh, uh, that's how we basically would treat her. Now, the case here would be is that 
Rabbi Shimon Omer, right? A woman who basically uh, had an act of cohabitation, right? With her, right? Or an act of chalitza with her by the brother of the original husband, okay? So what we're talking about here is, is that what Rabbi Shimon is saying is, is that this woman who mistakenly committed adultery, okay? She would be allowed to, uh, to to uh, to the Yavam, to the brother, uh, she would be allowed to him like anybody else. So in other words, she gets back with her husband, with her first husband. He dies childless, and now they have to decide if they're going to do uh, Yibam or Chalitza, right? So according to Rabbi Shimon, uh, she would be allowed to, um, and um, and it, that basically what Rabbi Shimon is saying is is that uh, they didn't, uh, you know. That she Yibum is basically allowed to uh, uh, is allowed to basically uh, it can take place, okay? And that either Yibum or Chalitza can take place with her. But if he does that, he basically also frees the Tsara, the co-wife, from having to do Yibum or Chalitza. She's Poteret, right? Poteret Tsarata. Sorry, I I explained before. I read ahead, and so from this Mishnah, what we're actually seeing is is that here we have a co-wife. We have a woman who mistakenly committed adultery, she can do Yibam or Chalitza, okay, um, basically. And the co-wife is basically poteric. But the point, but the idea here basically is, is that the, the, the co-wife, in other words, there had Yibam or Chalitza has to have been done. She's only poteric once Yibam or Chalitza is done with this, you know, un, uh, mistaken uh, adulterous wife, okay? And so then this is basically rejected. Amr lach, Rav, Rav will say to you, Amina la anasota de Arisa. So he, Rav is going to say to you, no, my case was very specific. And it's specific to a Sota, who is an adulteress under biblical law, meaning that there were two witnesses who saw her, and there's a whole process that they go through to declare that woman actually a Sota. But you're talking to me about a Mishnah who's an adulteress under rabbinic law. In other words, this is not what we consider adulteress according to uh, Torah law, this is rabbinic law, right? The, this is this unusual case, right? Where a woman, it was testified that her husband was dead. She was given permission to actually remarry. And then they find out that her husband actually, first husband was actually alive. So the point is, Rebbe's going to say, you can't bring this mission as a proof. It, it has nothing to do with my first case, right? And so then the Gemara says, Udikare, right? Uh, so the one, meaning Rav Kisa, who asked this question from the Mishnah, my Kari Lake, why did he actually? Uh, why did he actually ask it? Right, because it's clear Rub is talking about the sota that's still raisa and and who is described as tuma and not this unusual, really interesting, you know, but exceptional case that's described later on in the Mishnah. And so the Gemara answers Kasava Rav takun Rabbanan takun that any whatever law the rabbis enacted, they also enacted in the matter of biblical law, meaning. That, uh, in, yes, it's true that there's these two separate categories, right? There's this category of the biblical sota, and her co-wife is exempt. They don't have to do chalitza and yibam. But Rav Chisa's theory is, is that the rabbis would basically apply the same thing to a woman who's an adulterer under any circumstance, right? Because, in other words, the law sort of consistently uh, needs to be the same, and so, therefore, even that woman who is an unwilling, unwilling adulteress and is even permitted to go back to her husband in the case of Yibam, it should be treated as the, as the Sotah. 
So I'm, I'm not going to keep reading here. Um, and, you know, then they go through another challenge with him and then they reject that and they sort of question, you know, uh, that, you know, that challenge. And they go through some interesting things about exactly like, how do you prove what an adulteress is, right? Is it having witnesses? Is it that they just were secluded for a period of time where an act could have actually happened? Um, so it gets into some interesting discussion about what the SOTA is and what adultery actually is. But, you know, this is a whole other uh, different type of case uh, that we're discussing here. And I think what we're, what's interesting again about this, these DAPM is, we're not talking about who's eligible to do Yibum or not to do Yibum. The discussion solely centers around the co-wife, right? And again, this is based on the Mishnah. So I, I, I just find it interesting that we haven't even gotten to the discussion of, you know, would the Sota be eligible to do Yibum or not to do Yibum? We're already on like the one we step move. And it's so typical of the Gemara that that's sort of where the discussion actually starts. Like we're not even talking about the core of Yibum. We're just talking about the co-wives. I keep trying to imagine, you know, the the saga of this family, right, that has, you know, a situation of co-wives and, you know, unintentional adultery and, you know, what is really going on and a husband who dies childless so that there's now a question over, you know, whether the brother of this husband who's going to come and deal with the the widow, but she was adult, you know, unwittingly adulterous and plus the co-wife, meaning I understand all these players, right? You've just outlined them, but I'm trying to put them into like, you know, characters in a scenario. And I feel like it gets very complicated, um, which of course, this is why the DAF is complicated, but I'm, I am again, finding myself wondering, you know, was this the kind of thing that could happen in a common way? Certainly Yibum and Chalitza of the straight up kind, meaning there's somebody who dies child, uh, a man dies childless. And so Yibum or Chalitza has to kick in. That kind of thing happens, happens, you know, too often, let's say. But um, but these other, you know, complicating factors, it's interesting to me. I'm curious how, how practical, not how practical, they're practical, but how real it was that this would happen. Right. I, I don't know how, pra- you know, again, I think a lot of what's happening in these documents, I said this yesterday, is it's taking different halakhic scenarios and being like, how does it fit into Yibam, right? Different relationships that are right. assured and saying, how does it fit into Yibam? I'm not so sure. So I've got another one. Yeah. So yeah. now you go to the next one. Okay. So this is, it begins here as a dilemma that Rav Yehuda brings to Rav Sheshit. And the case is this. Hamachzir grushato so what's the case? We've got a story of, you know, a couple, what happens? Uh, they, it was a married couple who divorced. And then she, the wife of that couple, the divorcee, marries somebody else. And then that new husband dies. And she goes back to marry the original husband. Now, generally speaking, we maintain that in somebody, if if a couple divorces, they can't marry other people and then remarry each other. Um, and there's like a concern, right? Like they would then, you know, shop around your wife type of thing um, if you could do that easily. So that's not supposed to happen to begin with, meaning people are not supposed to remarry their original spouses after they've already been married to another person. So, but that's the case here, right? Meaning she's married to somebody else who then dies, okay? And now 
what happens to the co-wife, right? Theoretically, there should be a case of Yibum for for this woman, right? Meaning, again, she, you know, is she supposed to, she's supposed to, at some point, she's supposed to um, have Yibum, this woman should have Yibum from the dead husband, the second husband's brother. But instead, she's married back to the first husband. So should, should the co-wife then, like, what's the Yibum status for the co-wife? And I agree with you, Dana. This is not about the original case. It's again about the co-wife. Ali Rebiosi ben Kefar, lo tibailach, kevanda ma Rebiosi ben Kefar, tum'a b'machzir grushato, hu dektiva tsaratak mota. So what happens? So Rebiosi ben Kefar says, you don't have, this is not an issue. Do not even raise this as a question. Why? Because his position was that the moment you've got the remarriage, meaning that the first husband the divorce, the divorce, right? The first, the time, that, sorry. As soon as they get married again, right? Which is not supposed to happen. That's why it's called here Tuma, right? Then the co-wife is also no longer in need of Yibum because that remarriage kind of nullified the need for Yibum there. Um, not because the dead husband's name was protected, but because the wife has done something that kind of removes her from this field of of needing Yibum, and therefore, you know, the co-wife becomes irrelevant because she's because the woman who goes back to her original husband has kind of removed the whole um, let's do this properly out of the picture because she's not supposed to have done this to begin with. She's not supposed to go back to the, the first husband. Okay, and then the question is, you know, the guy here talks about the status of this woman and the status of potential children, meaning from the remarriage and the question is, you know, does the language of toeva, of an abomination, should that apply? Does it apply to her? Does it apply to the children? The Gemara seems to say that it applies to her, but not to the children. And this is exactly, you know, the Gemara goes on to, to raise, um, you know, how far do we take uh, her wrongdoing, let's say, and going back to the first husband, to how much does that apply uh, to status, right? In, in their standing, how much does it mess them up in society, so to speak? Okay, and then, and this is where I feel it gets again, it gets interesting again. We say, So what happens? We've got the case again, or they're trying to figure out what would happen. Let me just make sure that I've got this right. Um, my af- So they say, let this whole scenario be raised according to the opinion of Rabbi Yosef ben Kefar. What did he say? Again, he said, My Rabbi Yosef ben Kefar. That the tuma, that the impurity that's kicked up when the divorcee goes back to her first husband after having been married to somebody else in between, so the Gemara here says that the that the Torah limited how far toeva the abomination of this kind of um well it's one of the it ends up being one of you know a prohibited sexual relationship so you know how far does that go and the Gemara here says or Yossi Ben Kifar says it only goes so far as this woman so her co-wife is not considered a toeva Odilma and then it says or maybe she is Odilma so maybe she the co-wife is not an abomination but the but maybe the co-wife is an abomination, but the children are not abominations. But then again, once you're talking about the children, 
then you've you've gone a step further than the co-wife status, which if you're going to bother to talk about the children, the Gemara was making the point, then the implication is that the tsara, that the co-wife is uh, to Eva, that the very fact of this woman going back to her original husband kicks in a toiva status for the co-wife. So Rav Sheshit says that Amarle, because again, remember, this is Rav Sheshit brings a question, Rav Yehuda brings a question to Rav Yehuda. So Rav Sheshit says to him, Amarle Tanitua, you learn this in a breita that talks about, the, you know, you've already learned this. What's the case? Where two Yavamot came before Yavam, and then what happens? One of those two women who came before the Yavam was suitable, uh, meaning appropriate, kosher, whatever, for Yibum, and the other was not, disqualified. And so then he has to figure out, which, what's he going to do? He's got these two women that theoretically he should be with, you know, both of them, but he can't be with both of them. He has to be with only one of them. So what's he supposed to do to get rid of that um the obligation of Yibum, he can either do chalitza or he can do Yibum. But he can't do Yibum with a woman who's psula. He can to him, right? He can only do Yibum with the one who's him. So if he's gonna do chalitza, says the Gemara, he should do chalitza with the woman who's psulatim. But if he's going to do psula meaning disqualified, right? He can't he can't marry her for whatever complicating factor, but he can do chalitza. Or alternatively he can do Yibum with the one the woman who's kasher. So Rishishit says as follows, Mike Sherao, Mike Psula, what are we talking about when we say kosher and pasul in this case? alma. If we say that kosher here, Kshera, means she is kosher for everybody, for anybody, and psula, psula la alma, and we say disqualified, means she's disqualified at large, meaning the normal ways of disqualification. For example, a divorcee is disqualified from marrying a Kohen, for example. Uh, so then the Gemara says, and what's what's the big shakes of having this as an example of of kosher and pasul? Right? Why would she be described in this way? Because we already know that there are people in these categories. It's not there's nothing specific here with in the yibum case. So rather, what happens? The Gemara says, shirak Rather, we're talking about what I said before. This is I, I translated ahead of the Gemara, right? Because I got to the end and brought it back to the beginning. I apologize for that. That the kosher, that when the woman is said to be, she is suitable or she is kosher, she is kosher to him, to the yabam, yavam. And psul, pasul, means that she's disqualified with regard to him, but not re- with regard to everybody else. And this is exactly the situation of the man who remarries the divorcee, meaning his own divorcee. Why? Because she theoretically could have gone on to marry any number of other men, meaning not a Kohen, but all kinds of other people. And so could have he, right? But he's he, she is Pasul. She should never have been marry, remarrying him. So then well, he wouldn't there's no situation there when because of this remarriage of the divorcee, uh, that's a case where theoretically it would be the it's not theoretical. It's practical that she, uh, the yibum would not happen because of the psul, because of the disqualification to begin with. Let me say this a little more carefully, and I think with that we're going to close. So what happens? We have the case of the person who remarries his divorcee. The brother had remarried the divorce. This is, uh, I'm working here off of commentary. It's not in the text, which also makes it harder, right? Where the 
dead brother had remarried his own divorced wife after she had married another brother, uh, another man, right? Let's say this again. I'm going back to the beginning. A couple is married. They divorce. She marries somebody else. The new husband dies. She goes back to the first husband. Now the implication is that that man dies and he has a brother who's going to do yibum for this remarried to his brother, you know, a second time. But again, she should not have to do, he should not be able to do yibum here because she's she was disqualified to begin with because she should never have married that man again. But she is theoretically permitted to other men, right? And that's where we end up saying, okay, um, he should only be doing yibum with somebody who's fit to marry to begin with, which means that the co... Now, let's take it back to the co-wives, and this is where, again, it's a little head-spinning, um, that the co-wife of the remarried divorcee could have yibum, because the issue was the divorcee herself and not the co-wife. Um, then the Gemara, of course, rejects us all and says, no, <laughs> no, we're not just talking about specific to him, not not just specific or disqualified specific to him. We're talking about in general, and um, and then that's going to um, that's going to make the big difference. The Gemara here says, uh, since she is kosher, then what my nafkale mina? What's the difference for him in terms of going back to the statement of Yosi? And I'm going to stop here, even though the rigmarole, and I don't want to call it a rigmarole, really, but the the whole scenario of trying to figure out whether the co-wife here would be. Um, eligible for Yibum or not is, is I think they're using their thumbs. It's really challenging to figure out um, how far does this disqualification, the fact that she should not have married him to begin with, meaning it's a it's a prohibited dynamic, then does it kick in to affect the Yibum of the co-wife? Um, and then, yeah. And then the Gemara goes on to talk about, you know, more of this, I, you know, again, it doesn't end. The, the right. These phrases actually go long. And I think one of the things Anne and I've been talking about while we've been prepping is, you know, like we can't necessarily go through the entire case. You know, it's, it's a long Gemara. Um, but it's more it's, of that it's sort of frustrating as the, as the speaker here, right? Like, because I'm no, I know I'm not getting to the end of the case. Right. And I, and honestly, the end of the case isn't always on the end of one daf, you know, right. it also and makes all, sense. And all the permutations, but, um, Look, I think this was an interesting dab in the sense it takes two really interesting sort of scenarios of other, you know, relationships that are not permitted. And again, I, I, I think this is going to be my repeated theme because this is what I've been noticing the whole time is, you know, Yibum actually shouldn't happen. And so it's taking one, you know, usually prohibited relationship, which the Torah makes an exception for. And we're placing it up against other prohibitive relationships and seeing how that plays out. Particularly here, it's specific to the case of the co-wife, which is a very interesting way to explore it. Um, but uh, it, it's, I, I think this is all boundary pushing. This is the one thing Anne and I keep discussing. Like, I don't, I'm not convinced these cases happen, but it's like trying to line up all different laws and seeing like, how do they interplay? Yeah, I, I understand why people say that Yuvamot is so challenging. And I would say further that it is particularly challenging in this context of the DAF. Um, okay. Because we don't have the time to delve into it in the same way that, you know, where we could with charts. And But it's not just charts. It's a matter of really parsing it through 
much more slowly, much more carefully. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.